Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. Last episode, we talked about the rise of Islam and how it swept over the Middle East, Central Asia, and across North Africa. And I mentioned that the Islamic Caliphate, which was controlled by the Umayyad dynasty at the time, conquered Spain and pushed their way up into France. In 732, however, in France, the Caliphate ran into a Frankish king with one of the greatest nicknames of all time. Charles the Hammer. But before we get to Hammer and Charlie, let's talk a bit about the landscape of Europe here in the early Dark Ages. The Roman Catholic Church had de facto control over much of Italy and France and parts of Germany and parts of Great Britain, ruling through a network of local kings and princes who were often appointed by the church. Western Europe was divided amongst a lot of different tribes many of whom had migrated there from elsewhere. The Franks settled in what is now France. The Angles and Saxons settled in Britain. The Goths settled in several parts of Western Europe. Many of the barbarian tribes had converted to Christianity, and even though all the tribes had distinct political structures and kings, they all paid their allegiance to the Roman Catholic Church. Because of this, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope, became extremely influential. One of the most powerful early popes was named Gregory I, who was pope from AD 540 to 604. Now this is a different Gregory from the one who will eventually create the Gregorian calendar that we use today. That came from Gregory XIII in the 1500s. Gregory I was born in Rome in a patrician family, and early in his life he joined a monastery. He came back to Rome and then re-entered political and church life. When he was chosen to be the Pope, he declared that he did not even want the job, but he ended up taking it anyway. As Pope, he consolidated a lot of power, both religious and political, and he sent missionaries to Spain and Britain and other parts of Europe. The Franks, Lombards, and Visigoths, that is the Western Goths, all converted from Arian Christianity to Roman Christianity under Gregory. After this, the Roman Catholic Church became the most powerful political force in Western Europe because the Church held that it had the power on earth, as God's representative, to appoint the earthly powers. In other words, the Church got to decide who would be king over this province or that province. The church also held the power of excommunication, which meant that it could remove someone from being part of the church and forbid them to enter a church or even receive communion. This also included, at least in the church's mind, the idea that this excommunicated person was also having their salvation removed from them. So if the church excommunicated you, that meant you were doomed to go to hell. Now that's a powerful motivational tool, that is. At some point, I really want to talk about the theology of the Dark and Middle Ages and how we're still wrestling with some of those Dark Age ideas even today. I think I'll come back to that when we get to the Reformation. I might have to do an entire episode on the history of hell.
Okay, there. I've added it to my podcast plan list. It's going to be episode 41. Stay tuned. Anyway, the church wielded enormous political power by wielding its perceived spiritual power. The different tribes of Europe were each individually relatively weak, at least compared to how things had been in Roman times. The church itself didn't have its own military power. So because Europe was sort of broken up into these smaller tribal groups without real central control, at least militarily, Europe was vulnerable to an attack, like the attack by the Umayyad Caliphate in the 700s. The Muslim tribes that captured Spain are called by various names, including the Umayyads, since they were technically part of the larger Umayyad Caliphate. They're also called the Moors, which is a later European word to describe Muslims that conquered parts of Europe. They're called the Berbers, which is one of the tribes in northwest Africa. And they're also called the Saracens, which is a later European term whose origins are hard to pin down. From here on out, though, in this episode, I'm going to call them the Moors, because that's the term that William Shakespeare used to describe Othello, and that's probably good enough for me. So the Moors had crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and conquered post-Roman Spain. They had mostly stopped at the Pyrenees Mountains, which is the mountain range that at the north end that divides Spain from France. Prior to the Moorish invasion, there had been some Christian presence in Spain, but the tribes in the Iberian Peninsula had not converted en masse to Christianity like other tribes had. So the Moors attacking Spain wasn't really a Muslim versus Christian battle. It was more of a Muslim expansion into an area that had some Christians. In fact, during the Muslim occupation of Spain, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all coexisted there in relative harmony, in part because Spain was literally the farthest corner of the Umayyad Caliphate, and things were a little more relaxed there than they were in other parts of the Umayyad Empire, where observance of Islam was often enforced legally and militarily by the rulers. To the north of the Pyrenees Mountains lay the Christian Frankish territories of Aquitaine, Burgundy, Nuestria, and Austrasia. Each of these were ruled by separate Frankish dukes under the leadership of a family known as the Merovingians. By this point, all the Franks had converted to Christianity. And by this, I mean Roman Catholic Christianity. And thus, all these tribes saw the Pope as their spiritual leader. The Frankish territories were in some of the most desirable, fertile land in all of Europe. I mean, it is France, right? It's pretty nice there. It's not as hot as Italy. It's not as cold as Germany or Great Britain. It's sunny, and there are good wine grapes growing on literally every hill. So the Franks were doing pretty well for themselves there in what had been known as Gaul previously. Charles Martel was not born as the king of the Franks. He was the illegitimate son of a guy named Pepin, who was the mayor of the palace. The mayor of the palace was essentially the same role as the Hand of the King, which was Tyrion Lannister's job at several points in Game of Thrones. The mayor of the palace carried out the decrees of the rulers who at the time were the Merovingians. No, not the same Merovingian that Neo had to go meet to borrow a key in the second Matrix movie, but the name is the same. The Merovingians were sort of the ruling family of the Franks until Charles came along. After the Merovingian dynasty ends, the rulers are called the Carolingian dynasty, which is a weird Anglicanization of the name Charles. 
Charles, Carolingians, it's the same root word in French. Carol, Charles, Carolingians, it's all the same word. Anyway, after a series of intrigues among Frankish families that included a civil war, Charles was locked up in a castle for a few years. Then he escaped. Then there were some battles with the Saxons and other squabbles. But by around 720 AD, Charles became the de facto ruler of the Frankish tribes. He continued to consolidate his power, and by 730, he was firmly Charles in charge. In 732, a Moorish army, or at least a very large raiding party, tried to capture the wealthy city of Tours, which is pretty far into France and not that far from Paris. Charles organized a defense, and at the Battle of Tours on October 10, 732, Charles defeated the Moors, and they retreated to Spain. The Moorish general was killed, and the battle fully cemented Charles' rule over the Franks. It's probably due to the Battle of Tours that he got the nickname Charles the Hammer, but it's not really recorded in history as his nickname until about a hundred years later. Still, it's a pretty cool nickname. One of his sons, in contrast, is named Pepin the Short, so of the two, yeah, I'd pick the Hammer. He was also known as Charles Martel, which is a sort of twisting of the Latin word for hammer, which is malleus, and for that's the word from which we get the English word mallet. So Martel, mallet, hammer, it's all part of Charles's nickname. So Charles the mallet, Charles the hammer, dies in AD 471, and he parcels the Frankish land out to his sons, who rule over separate areas as dukes. Eventually, in 751, Pepin the Short becomes the ruler of the whole territory, and he's actually crowned the king, something that Charles never achieved. Pepin was anointed king by the Pope, and Pepin rules rules pretty well from 751 until 768 when he died. He was succeeded by his two sons, Carloman and Charles. One last note about Pepin. He was the guy who donated the land to the church and said the church could rule this land directly, that eventually becomes the land that the Vatican is built on. There were uh, other lands that he gave the church too. This gift of land is known as the donation of Pepin. Pepin's sons, Charles and Carloman, ruled jointly until Carloman died in AD 771, leaving again Charles in charge. Charles is going to reign over most of Western Europe from 771 to 814, a total of Crab's calculator. 43 years. That's pretty long by the standards of European rulers over the ages. Especially long if you exclude female British monarchs named Victoria or Elizabeth. So Charles gets the nickname Charlemagne, which is literally Charles Le Magne, or Charles the Great, from some poetry that was written about him by a court biographer about 30 years after his death. By that time, at least, he was already, though, being referred to as Charles the Great, and his biographer also called him the Father of Europe. So, what did Charles do during his 43 years to earn these nicknames? Well, besides consolidating his rule over the Franks and organizing it into a very cohesive kingdom, he also conquered the Saxons. He pushed the Moors further south in Spain, he solidified the power of the Roman Church in Italy, France, and other parts of Central Europe. He organized and wrote down a lot of laws and applied them all over his territory. He rebuilt a lot of things that had fallen into ruin, and he also built the first university in Paris. His reign 
was a period of peace and stability in Western Europe, and some of the trappings of civilization such as art, literature, and infrastructure really did return. It's known as the Carolingian Renaissance, and to be fair, it wasn't just Charlemagne. It was the combined effort of Charles the Hammer, Pepin the Short, and Charles the Great, who managed to get a little renaissance going. Spoiler, it's going to peter out after Charlemagne, and the Dark Ages will return with a vengeance. The high point of Charles's reign was 800 AD, when Pope Leo III crowned him Emperor of the Romans. Now, in 800, this meant something different than it had meant 400 years ago before the fall of the Western Roman Empire. What it meant in 800 was that Charlemagne had the blessing of the church to rule over all the lands that he held, and in some sense over the lands that the church held, which were substantial. Charles encouraged the building of monasteries, cathedrals, schools, and city infrastructure all over his realm, and he also funded a lot of scholarship and the translation of ancient works into Latin. Charles also had a lot of laws pulled together into a central legal framework, which really hadn't existed since the Roman Empire. Charles's successors, though, pulled back some of this funding, and the subsequent years are relatively dark in the sense of having less of this scholarship, art, and infrastructure. But one other thing we need to talk about in terms of Charlemagne and the Carolingians is that these guys are basically responsible for creating the system of feudalism that Europe lives under for the next 1,000 years. I'm going to talk more about feudalism in an upcoming episode, but basically the central factor of feudalism is that one wealthy family owns nearly all the land in their region, and the poorer people merely live on that land. Some of those people may have owned a little bit of property, the poorer people, but most of the land was owned by the lord, the duke, the vicomte, the baron, or whatever local title that they gave the big landowners. Most of the farmland, animals, water, lumber, etc. were owned by the Lord. And this system was really set into place by the Carolingians. Some of the poorest of the poor in this system became indentured servants. That is, they owed money to the Lord, and basically they became slaves until they paid off their debt, if they ever did do that. These people were known as serfs. In some places, the serfs themselves were considered a part of the land that they lived on. So if some other lord bought or captured the land, they got the serfs as well. For the privilege of living on the lord's land, the serf had to farm the land, pay taxes, and sometimes serve in the lord's armed forces. The wealthy Roman patricians, who had owned a lot of land, had a similar sort of system. But there's one major difference between the feudalistic system and the Roman system, and that was that in many places there was no central power that organized the military defense of a region. Lords had their own little private armies, but if a huge threat loomed on the horizon, they would have to scramble to rally the other lords and dukes around them to their defense. You couldn't expect the full might of Rome and the Roman legions to come defend you. Now, Charles the Hammer did manage to pull together enough Franks to defeat the Moors, but this wasn't always possible. This is going to become a problem in some parts of Europe because of a group that we're going to look at in our next episode the Vikings. 